Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Q is about conversation. If we're really concerned about ending poverty, we've got to be more concerned about creating justice. Our cultural products as Christians need to both defy and resonate with the culture. And God's doing amazing things. His church is expanding. His church is growing. It's not what's the purpose of my life. It's what is the purpose that's been assigned. Stay curious. Think well. Advance good. This is Q. Christian affiliation is going to decline by about 15 to 20 percent over the next 30 years, down to about 54 to 59 percent of the U.S. population. That translates into 42 million young people, 42 million people who attend our churches and our youth groups, our Christmas and Easter services, who will say that they were raised in Christian families and as adults, they'll say they're not. Now, there are questions to be had around the depth of their family's faith now and the eternal consequences, but nonetheless, these are 42 million people that will disaffiliate from a life with Christ. If we can return just to the retention and evangelism rates that we saw in the 1990s, 20 million people will disaffiliate, which means that 22 million more people will know Jesus than otherwise would have. That was Josh Crossman of the Pine Tops Foundation with a hopeful lie and what most people consider depressing news, the exodus of many millennials and Gen Zers from our churches. This is Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Gabe will join us later. I'm Paul Perot from Faith Radio, and I've seen data much like Josh shared from other organizations, numbers that talk of how many youth are growing up only to leave the faith. We're going to look at this issue from two vantage points on today's show. We'll hear from Josh in his talk later when Gabe joins us. But first, let's hear from Sky Jathani. Sky has joined us before on Q Ideas. Now, in this recent Q talk, though, Sky looks at the exodus of our youth and asks an important question Have we truly given our kids the gospel, or have we given them something that might actually inoculate them from believing? Let's listen in. Fifteen hundred years ago, the Emperor of Rome built a mausoleum for his sister in Ravenna, Italy. It still stands today. The Galla Placidia is considered one of the most important historical relics from that age because its domed ceiling has one of the most artistically perfect ancient mosaics in the world today. Many tourists will crowd into this little chapel to get a glimpse of the ceiling, but when they enter, they're quickly disappointed because despite all the hype, the ceiling is so high and the windows are so small and such little light gets in that this beautiful mosaic remains hidden behind a shadow. The experience of being in the Galliplacidia parallels what many people experience in the church today. They come into Christian faith with an expectation of transcendence, that they are going to encounter God, that they will experience love and peace and joy and forgiveness and a profound level. But the shadows remain and they are disappointed. Increasing numbers are just leaving. But some who remain settle for a, a lesser form of Christian faith, a, a, a less than divine experience, one that I would say is merely a human religion. 
And in a way, they've received a, a form of Christianity that lacks any potency, has no power. They've been inoculated to the true message of Christ. When I say it's merely a human religion, we need to unpack that a little bit. Uh, human religion is predicated on a simple idea, and that is that we are all afraid. Despite efforts to get rid of religion throughout the centuries, it endures because we all know that this universe is a dangerous and scary place to live. It's a threatening place of scarcity and chaos and ugliness. And that fear drives us to seek control as a way of mitigating our fears. All human religion at its core is a system of control, trying to mitigate fears. The problem, however, is that when we try to control our world, our cosmos, it inevitably leads to more danger, more fear. Because for me to gain more control means I have to take that away from someone else. And so we get holy wars. We get civilizations in conflict with each other. We even get battles in our families over religious ideas or things like oil and water. That's where conflict comes from. And this goes round and round and round. And so religion tends to fuel this. Now, in our current world of pluralism and relativism, we like to think, at least some sectors do, that all religions are basically the same. They take different paths and they terminate at the same point, that they're all reaching the same goal. But this other understanding of religion actually inverts the mountain and says, no, the truth is all religions come from the same source, which is our fear and our desire for control, and then take very different paths to different destinations, different ways of, of seeking control. Now, all of these paths, in my view, can be put into four categories, or what I call postures. The first posture is life under God. This is classic religion, it's superstition, it's the uh, proverbial drop the virgin into the volcano to appease the gods and make sure there's a good harvest. Uh, there's a Christian variety of this which says, as long as you obey God's instructions, he will bless you. If you disobey, he will curse you. You see this come out quite a bit after tragedies like Hurricane Katrina or an earthquake in Haiti or even 9-11 where voices will come out and say, well, you know why this really happened? It's because people disobeyed God. But the problem is it doesn't solve the issue of fear and control because what this does is say you can control your world by trying to control God through morality and ritual. But what it ends up doing is perpetuating the fear and control and anger and hatred between cultures. So we abandon that over time and we go to life over God. This is epitomized by secular hum humanism that says you don't need God in the picture. You don't need religion. All you need is to understand how the world operates through science or principles. And we can have direct control over our universe to mitigate fears. There's also a Christian variety of this that says you can have a Christian marriage, a Christian government, a Christian family or organization as long as you just take Christian principles from the Bible and employ them properly. But God doesn't actually need to be involved. You can put him aside and just run it based on principles. But again, this doesn't take away our fears because how well we employ those principles is never, it doesn't work the way we want and the fear continues. Then we move to life from God. This is the favorite in the American culture. This is essentially consumer Christianity that says the way I'm going to mitigate my fear is by seeing God as a divine vending machine who exists to supply my desires, who will give me enough health, wealth, prosperity to insulate myself from the dangers in this world. Again, it doesn't ultimately take away our fears. It just insulates us from them. And then the fourth posture, life for God, the most common among my peers in Christian ministry, which says if you really want to get rid of fear in your life, you need to accomplish great things for Christ and his kingdom. How many wells have you dug? How many Christians have you created? How many churches have you planted? How many cultural systems have you transformed? The more you accomplish, the more successful you are. And these four postures represent sort of the boundaries of most people's religious lives. 
we bounce between these in different seasons. And most of our work in ministry areas is trying to transfer people from one of these postures to another. We're trying to get people who are living over God to live under him. And we're trying to get people who are living from God to live for him, to convert them from Christian consumers to Christian activists. The problem is we actually end up inoculating people to the true message of the gospel. At the Gala Placidia, if you endure long enough in that place and you stay through the shadows, eventually something unexpected happens. There's a little metal box along the wall. And when someone drops a coin into it for a donation, it also ignites lights that illuminate the ceiling. And for a few brief seconds, everything has changed. The shadows depart and they're given a vision and the central picture on that ceiling is this, a mosaic of the good shepherd. Jesus enthroned in a green paradise surrounded by swirling stars. One person said it's the most sublime thing they'd ever seen. And so... In the church, if we endure long enough through these false postures, from time to time, the lights come on and we're given a glimpse of the world behind the shadow. We come to see God for who he truly is. And in that moment, not deserved by his grace, illuminated by the spirit, something happens that transforms us, that reminds us there's a fifth option. There's another posture that's available to us. Not one we deserve, but a more excellent way. And that is, rather than a life from God, for God, under God, or over God, there's also the possibility of a life with God. Here's what happens. Every other posture of religious life says that God is to be used to achieve some other end. He's to be used to mitigate my fears. He's to be used to control my world. He's to be used to get me to heaven. He's to be used to transform the culture. But when you get a vision of who God truly is, his beauty, his wonder, his grace, suddenly you no longer want to use God. You want God. He ceases to be a means to an end and he becomes the end. The beginning and the end. The alpha and the omega. He becomes the treasure for which we would give everything just to possess. And this is what Jesus presents to us. Not a human form of religion predicated on fear and control, but a divine message of invitation into love and relationship. And the interesting part is when we grasp this, when we truly get that we're called to live in perpetual communion with God and possess him as our treasure, not just a device, Something happens. We come to see the world differently. Rather than trying to use God as a way of mitigating our fears by trying to control him through manipulation, instead we come to realize that our lives are perfectly safe in the hands of our loving Father. That nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And so rather than seeking control, we can surrender it. And in that position of surrendering control, the vision of the world changes. As Dallas Willard says, we realize that this is a perfectly safe world in which to live. That not even death can separate us from our God. And in that posture, the teachings of Christ begin to make sense. And for the first time, it makes sense for me to give generously, to love abundantly, to sacrifice and even take up my cross, knowing that nothing can make me afraid. The problem of fear is solved, and the way of faith is opened up. Now, the reason I share this is because I'm worried that in our current condition in our culture, we are presenting a generation with a vision of Christianity which is something less than what Christ intended. We're giving them a vision of mission for God, of transforming the culture, of freeing slaves and digging wells, and all those things are wonderful, glorious, and good things. But what we forget is that before we are called to something or somewhere, we are first called to someone.
Thanks again for listening to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons for this week as we look at our youth and the stats about the exodus of them from our churches when they grow up. I'm Paul Perot from Faith Radio. And yes, again, while some see all these stats as warning signs, some see the statistics as opportunities. And we're going to hear about that in just a moment. But first, Gabe joins us. And it's only about four months away, but we want to encourage you to join Gabe and his team and hundreds of others for a great three days of talks and curated experiences called Q2020. It's taking place in Nashville, April 22nd to 24th. Our talks, our speakers, all of the stuff's coming together again. It's, it's such a critical year. I think we're all feeling it. Of course, it's a new decade. But 2020 creates so many tensions, especially in the political space, the media space, the polarization. And we as leaders in the church, Christians in every field, have to be the ones that are bringing some semblance of peace to this, of understanding, of a collective way of thinking about this that makes sense, that's logical, that's reasonable, that helps root us. Because as we all know, this is dividing a lot of people. And so we believe this April is going to be one of the most special Q moments we've ever had. This is our 14th year, but the planning and preparations have just been extensive, and it's going to be awesome. It really does look that way. You're still working on the list of presenters, Gabe, but already confirmed are Justin Gibney and Michael Ware of the Anne Campaign talking about Christianity and politics. Also, there's a conversation between David French and Eric Metaxas on Christians and the Trump dilemma. Valerie Bell of the Children's Ministry of Juana be talking about resilient disciples, something we're kind of addressing on today's show, and so many more. So go to qideas.org slash 2020 for all the details and to register. Okay, Gabe, let's get back to our discussion of today's youth and the future of the church and our featured talk from Josh Crossman. Tell us about it. This talk is going to help you think about the next 30 years of the church, of the Christian faith, of how the next generation's thinking about faith. The talk was just brilliant. It's by Joshua Crossman, somebody who over the last few years I've gotten to know. He's a board member of, at a group called the Pine Tops Foundation. What I love about this foundation is they've decided to put a lot of their money and energy into studying where the future of faith is going and how we can think about what they're calling the great opportunity. So when many people look to the next 30 years and they think about the church, they're thinking kind of negatively, maybe cynically, that I think the church is on decline. Less people are interested in religion. We know that the next generation doesn't care as much about faith. In fact, probably looks down on it. And, and thinks it's part of the problem. Well, in this report, he acknowledges that. Like, the work that they did acknowledges that, yes, there's going to be a decline, but what if we took a different approach and saw what the opportunity is? What is the opportunity to plant churches? What is the opportunity for us to really engage the next generation? And how would we do that? And so I don't want to get ahead of this. I want you to listen to it. It's nine minutes. It'll be quick. But I want you to take it in and just get a sense and start to imagine how could we see what's about to be a new dynamic in the West about people losing faith in faith as a great opportunity. Let's listen in now to Joshua Crossman. When we funded our Modest Family Foundation a few years ago, we weren't sure how to best steward our resources, particularly when it came to the American church. So we launched a year-long rigorous research project to help provide insight for us. The end result? A report that we're making publicly available called The Great Opportunity. 
We asked two questions in this project. How can the U.S. church be more fruitful over the next 30 years? That was the first question we asked. The second was how can we play a part in it? And what we found surprised us. We found the largest gospel opportunity in the history of the American church. And if we move quickly, we can help tens of millions of young people know Jesus in the next 30 years. That's a pretty audacious claim. How did we get there? Well, we right now in the United States, about 73% of the U.S. adult population would self-identify as Christian. We combine that information with what are called switching rate trends. That is, what religion do adults say they're in compared to the one in which they're raised? And then added to that population statistics like mortality, fertility, and immigration. And what we found was that Christian affiliation is going to decline by about 15 to 20% over the next 30 years, down to about 54 to 59% of the U.S. population. That translates into 42 million young people. 42 million people who attend our churches and our youth groups, our Christmas and Easter services, who will say that they were raised in Christian families, and as adults, they'll say they're not. Now, there are questions to be had around the depth of their family's faith now and the eternal consequences, but nonetheless, these are 42 million people that will disaffiliate from a life with Christ. If we can return just to the retention and evangelism rates that we saw in the 1990s, 20 million people will disaffiliate, which means that 22 million more people will know Jesus than otherwise would have. 22 million. That's more than both Great Awakenings, the African-American church after the Civil War, the Azusa's revivals, and every Billy Graham conversion combined. It is the largest gospel moment in American history. Now, while these numbers seem incredible, this is not a purely theoretical exercise. This is my family. This is my beautiful wife, Anne, and our four children, Josiah, Isaiah, Evelyn, and Evangeline. Statistically, uh, if the trends hold, two of our children will walk away from their faith in the next 20 years. And as a parent, that breaks my heart. Anne and I, like most Christian parents, want to take the stewardship of our children as a high calling. We want to pastor them well and introduce them to Jesus. But two of our children, if the statistics hold, will walk away. So every day we work on this project, we say, how can we parent and pastor them well? How can we introduce them to Jesus in a way that they might live God and continue a walk with him as an adult? Of course, it's not just my children. It's 42 million sons and daughters, children and grandchildren, brothers and sisters who are walking away from a life with Christ. This is our great opportunity. Now, there is incredible urgency to this moment. Statistically, 96% of all adults make their faith decision before the age of 35. The oldest millennial is now 39. They drive a minivan and probably have two kids. The oldest Gen Z is 19. And the last Gen Z will be born this year. We do not have 20 years to start to reach these friends. By then, it'll be too late for most. The moment is now. We cannot wait. We cannot delay. But I am hopeful in this moment. Hope is a uniquely Christian virtue because we have hope in a God who reaches into history to care for his creation. God has moved in generations time and time and time again. 
And there's so much that we can learn from the example of those who've gone before us. The work in front of us doesn't require some new technique, some undiscovered approach. No, it is the church's historic witness when we are at our best. So today we're going to unpack five themes that are the intersection of the church's historic witness in our present moment. In our report, we have over 30 specific recommendations for funders, ministries, and churches. This is such a solvable problem by God's grace. And of course, all of this starts with prayer. I like how John Tyson describes it. He says, this is the prayer list. So the first thing we want to unpack is that we need to triple church planting. Right now in the United States, we plant 4,000 churches each year, which sounds fantastic, except that we close 3,700 for a net of 300 churches. That's not enough to keep up with population growth, much less the increasing needs of the unaffiliated. Church is a single most effective tool for reaching the lost. An average new church has 40% of the congregation that was previously unchurched. We estimate that we need to plant about 250,000 churches over the next 30 years. Second, we need to transform youth discipleship. The age and stage model of youth discipleship, where you drop a kid off into youth group on a Friday night for a couple hours and they'll end up following Jesus, is empirically less effective today. The good news is we know what works. It's what's always worked. It's parents and adults in the church who take their faith seriously, who walk alongside young people and challenge them to take their faith seriously, and who go on mission with Jesus. Number three, we need to evangelize digitally. Our historic witness of the church has always been to embrace new media and to use that to spread the good news. Right now in the United States, the average under 35 spends nine hours a day in front of a screen. And there are over one million seeker-related searches each month in the United States. Where are our digital Whitfields and Billy Grahams? Fourth, we need to be famous for our care for the poor. Despite U.S. religious organizations generating $1.2 trillion of social benefit, for the first time, a majority of the unaffiliated think the U.S. church is a net negative to society. In this moment, our dominant public witness must be our care for the poor so that all might see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And finally, we need to build leadership for the long term. Right now in top 50 universities, only 2 to 3% of professors would self-identify as actively Christian. If we to engage our culture and sustain the church for the long run, we must love Christ with our minds. We must encourage, support, develop those who are called to a vocation at the university. In Matthew 16, there's this wonderful story. The Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious and cultural elite of their day, they go to Jesus and they ask for a sign to prove his divinity. Jesus' response talks about the weather. He says, hey, you can see the signs in the sky, the clouds. Based on that, you can make some pretty good short-term weather forecasts. The implication, they could see what was happening in the sky, but were blind to what was happening on the ground. They couldn't understand the singular historic moment in which they lived. The signs and wonders, the prophecies fulfilled, the thousands following a man in the desert. It didn't make sense to them. Man, could things just go back to the way they were? Right now, we, the religious elite of our day, are privileged to have the tools and resources to discern the probable departure of tens of millions of our friends and family away from a life with Christ. So will we leave the 59% to save the 41? 
Will numbers like 16, 22, 35, 42 million break our hearts and bring us to tears? Because these numbers are the very people with whom God has placed us and called us to love. All of us must answer these questions. Will we discern the times in which we live and respond as God would have us, or will we miss our moment? The next 30 years will either see the greatest loss of souls in American history or the greatest move of God on our watch, on our stewardship. I am hopeful. Hope in a God who can redeem the hearts of millions, turning them back to a life spent with him. Hopeful of thousands of towns and communities who have been transformed by the very body of Christ. Hopeful in an eternity, walking with those who would have otherwise walked away. This is the greatest gospel opportunity in American history. This is our great opportunity. Thank you. I love how Josh ends this. I mean, it's right, isn't it? Like this will be on our watch. Most of us, hopefully, God willing, will be alive over the next 30 years. So what, what, what is going to happen? And instead of just sitting back and thinking that it's going to happen to us, how can we just continue to be proactive? How can we be innovative? How can we think about this? Some of the solutions that I, I like about what Josh talks about here is things that we care a lot about at Q. You know, how do we plant more churches over the next 30 years? How do we use digital information to evangelize? I know for us, Q Media and Q Dinners are becoming a great way for people to build new relationships with those who would never darken the door of a church. I mean, Q Dinners over this last couple of months, hundreds of people bringing people together in their home, having dinner, and having a real conversation around a topic like our loneliness epidemic. I mean, it's amazing. So these types of things, these are the ways forward. This is what people are hungry for. I think as we continue to innovate and create and find more people who are thinking about this and having a hopeful vision for the future, it actually inspires all of us. And that's why I want to remind you, come to Q2020, April 22nd to 24 in Nashville. If you're a church leader, we're doing a, for the first time a, a pre-gathering just for church leaders really discussing this next decade and what is it going to look like in a post-Christian setting to do discipleship. We're talking about these kinds of ideas. So if you've never been to Q, we want you to come. If you've been before and maybe it's been a couple years, come back this year. It's going to be an amazing time. We'll have over 2,200 leaders participating. It's already 50% sold out. And so I want you to join us. Go to qideas.org slash 2020. This program is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or on your podcast player. And thank you for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons.